about to listen to the full interview with Linda Moulton Howe. Sections of it were originally included in our Skinwalker Ranch episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Linda Moulton Howe is an investigative journalist and Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. She runs a website, earthfiles.com, which explores unexplained phenomena around the globe. Linda had the opportunity to interview Terry Sherman for Art Bell's radio program, Dreamlands with Art Bell, on June 30th, 1996. We spoke with Linda about her experience interviewing Terry and her thoughts on the phenomenon at Skinwalker Ranch. In my growing up and going to Stanford University to get a master's degree in communication, where I made documentaries for two years with the Stanford Medical Center. I made a documentary for them that they used for 19 years after I graduated with my master's degree and sent me a letter thanking me for doing the documentary film. And I also, my master's was on the Stanford Linear Accelerator's first efforts to get computers to do analysis of atomic bombardments. And when I graduated from Stanford, having made documentary films for those two years, I was hired by KNBC in Los Angeles to be a a normal street reporter covering everything from murders to uh, the Oscars to Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And then uh, I was hired to go to WCBB in Boston, the ABC station, to do their medical programming for two years. And it was like going to med school. And out of all of that work, I was also asked to do work in science. And I uh, interviewed people like Carl Sagan and others. And that's where I received as a producer uh, doing the science and medical work at the station, uh, a participation in the Peabody Award. And from there, I was hired to be director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver, Colorado. And my job was to produce documentary films, live studio programs, and news segments on all types of issues affecting the state of Colorado with emphasis on the environment, science, and medicine. Now, up until the summer of 1979, having graduated from Stanford in 68, so a decade of working in hard news, documentaries, studio productions, there was a headline in the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News on the same day in the summer of 1979, bloodless animal mutilations return. And what caught my attention as director of special projects was return. I was not familiar with animal mutilations or anything else in uh, the area of extraordinary phenomena. My life up to uh, the fall of 79 had been 100% uh, medicine, science, and environmental issues. So 
seeing this and calling up some reporter friends and learning that bloodless, trackless animal mutilations were a phenomena that had been recorded in the state going all the way back into the 1960s and it had periodically come and gone without ever any explanation and not a single human had ever been arrested or arraigned on a cattle mutilation or other animal mutilation charge. So the first thing I did, and this is where the arc of why we are talking 42 years later, <laughs> um, I decided that I needed to get in touch with sheriffs. So I uh, began calling different offices, and I was told over and over, you've got to talk with Sheriff Tex Graves in Sterling, Colorado. He had been sheriff in Logan County there for about 23 years and was, in fact, just retiring that fall as I made contact with his office. And the invitation was for me to come up to where he had been moving officially from the sheriff's office into a small shop where he was going to spend his retirement years. And I think that's why he was so honest with me that day. I um, was there for probably five hours, and he had something like uh, 266 color Polaroid photos that he himself a sheriff of Logan County had taken with Polaroid cameras. And as people forget today, but back then in uh, the 70s, the Polaroid, it was indisputably, you had photographs that would hold up in a court of law. You could not mess with Polaroids. And he let me take this huge box that he had of all the Polaroids he had taken of I think it was something like 166 mutilations. And he let me lay them down on the floor in a timeline, and it was covering a few years. And there was one that stood out, and I'm going to share it now to give you sort of the beginning reason for why I could not ever turn away from that floor in that retiring sheriff's office and all those color Polaroids ever. It was a steer. He told me it was a 1,700-pound steer, mostly black, a few patches of white. He said when he and the deputy got to the field the farmer had taken, they could see uh, from several yards away that the steer was lying in what Colorado ranchers call face powder. That's when it's dry summer and there's no grass and it's dust. And this animal is lying on its right side with its front legs and hooves so perfectly together that it was as if they had been glued together, as the sheriff said. There was not one line of struggle and over everything else, as they began to approach the dust powder with the 1,700-pound black steer lying in the middle of it, Sheriff said, I yelled to the deputy, don't walk to the animal before we have documented there is not a track around this body, including there is no steer track. How could this animal have gotten here? 
there's only one answer. He said he pointed up to the sky. He said this animal clearly has been put down here from above. And I'm getting this on my very first day <laughs> of my very first discussion about animal mutilations with a longtime hard-nosed sheriff. Now, what they learn next is what has haunted me over the last 42 years. And it haunted Sheriff Graves. He said it, this was a case that made it hard for him to sleep. As they started moving in with their cameras, uh, already having documented that there were no tracks in the face powder dust, they realized that the steer, as they had pr approached from the tail, they re realized that the steer's head was down in, in a hole. The sheriff said he took out one of his measuring rods. It was eight inches deep. But the rest of the body was absolutely perfectly horizontal. Those hooves as if glued together. And he said, the deputy said, Sheriff, what do you think happened here? The, this body didn't move, but look at this hole. And the sheriff said, the only conclusion that I can reach, and that's what I said to the deputy, Whoever did this, whoever put this animal from up above down onto this ground, decided that they would take the ear, the eye, the tongue, the jaw flesh, the genitals, and the rectum tissue. While the animal was paralyzed, but they left the head unparalyzed. And in the agony of having the excisions taken, the animal dug the hole with the head because it was the only part of the body that could move. Now, this, this is where we now walk into the true path of the phenomena of UFOs, human abductions, animal mutilations, skinwalkers, all of it. And that is that we are dealing with not humans in the animal mutilations, not humans in the human abductions, not humans in the skinwalkers. We are dealing with what law enforcement would begin to tell me the truth about as I worked for nine months solid on the film A Strange Harvest. And if I compress those nine months, it would be like I started on the path in Sheriff Tex Graves' office looking at those Polaroids haunted by the series of the steer that had been paralyzed except for its head. And the question that I asked the sheriff that day, do you imply that whatever was doing the mutilations purposefully was doing some kind of a laboratory test on this animal? Or was it just pure cruelty? And he said, I don't know. But whatever has done this has done it to hundreds and hundreds of other animals throughout the United States, Canada, around the world. We know it's going on around the world. And Linda, I'll save you some time. The perpetrators 
of these bloodless, trackless animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. I've seen the lights with my own eyes. I have traveled with reporters who have had good tripods over and over again. Big Bertha, that was a name that the people that lived in Sterling, Colorado in the early 70s, there was a light that would come and was associated with the animal mutilations, and they began to name it Big Bertha. And you can even do a search in Sterling, Colorado for Big Bertha, and it will take you to the UFO sightings and all the animal mutilations in the early 1970s there. And from that point on, every part of me that had always been hard science, I loved astronomy, I loved all the work I did in medicine, the Stanford Linear Accelerator, everything that I loved about going after facts. I like truth, I like facts. And what I then found myself in was beginning to walk in a path, the first of its kind in my existence, in which I was hearing the descriptions of ranchers, deputies, sheriffs, reporters, ranch hands, that all added up to something from outer space was in the skies of not only Colorado, but around the world, and its focus was upon tissue and fluids, not only from cattle, but from every domestic animal you can think of. They've all been subjected to the same bloodless, trackless mutilations, goats and sheep and horses and pigs and rabbits going into wild animals, foxes, deer, reindeer, uh, a, a whole huge gamut. And then I saw in an office at the uh, forestry department in Denver where they had photographs uh, that had been taken of deer that were exactly like what I was uh, with the crew. We were filming on ranches that were domestic animals. And by the end of nine months, working 18-hour days without let-up, telling my then-husband and my uh, young school child daughter that I was working on a difficult project. I was going to have to travel a lot, and it did. It went steady for nine months. And it was right toward the last eight weeks, uh, a strange harvest broadcast as a 90-minute special 8 to 9.30 on Channel 7 CBS on May 25th, 1980. I started my first work with Sheriff Graves in September of 79. So um, in those nine months, getting deeper and deeper into interviews and forensic science and gathering tissues gathering fluids, working with veterinarian pathologists, working with a pathologist, hematologist, finding that their, uh, the, uh, the hemoglobin and uh, various tissues were literally subjected to heat. The collagen was cooked. Um, and it was in what would have been March 
because it it was broadcast May 25th. It was in March that sort of the final piece of the gigantic puzzle fell into place. I got a call from Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who is director of counseling and testing at the University of Wyoming. And he had been helping me make contact with ranchers uh, in Wyoming, one that had had his own missing time, as well as several mutilated animals. And Dr. Sprinkle called to tell me that the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, known as APRO, down in Arizona, had contacted him because a woman and her daughter had been driving back from a bingo game in Houston in 1973. Uh, They were in a separate car from their family. There have been many people. It had been a happy night. They're headed home. And the daughter and the mother, driving together in one car, saw what they said looked like a pale yellow beam of light coming from something in the sky that glowed, and that they, it caused Judy Doherty, is her name, the mother, to pull the car over. And from that point on, when she pulled the car over and both she and the daughter could see, something was rising in the beam of light. Uh, when Dr. Sprinkle called me, it was then seven years later from 73, or six years later, from 73 to 79. Um, No, that's right. Let me see. It was uh, eight years later. I'm working in 79 to 80. Okay, and they were 73, and this would have been March of 80. So that was seven years later. And that Leah Sprinkle had gotten a call from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization in Arizona to do hypnosis, to help them investigate an extraordinary case that they were just learning about of Judy Doherty and her daughter, a beam of light, a UFO, and watching what they thought was a calf going up in the beam of light. And they knew that I was working on a documentary about animal mutilations in Denver and that I was working with Dr. Sprinkle. And that's how we all came together in these multiple phone discussions and decided that it would be too much to ask Judy Doherty to fly to Denver, but that we could take ourselves down to where she was and has always asked me to simply say in Arizona. And the crew was myself doing audio, my cameraman Richard Lerner doing the photography, Dr. Uh, Leah Sprinkle doing the hypnosis with Judy Doherty, And as I talk to you right now, on June 4th of 2021, so many years later, it is as if I am back there in that room and I can feel the palpable tension as I turn on my Nagra tape recorder that is now in sync with our camera. And Dr. Sprinkle begins a hypnosis that would go on and off for four hours. And the part that I still remember 
so vividly. At one point, in or out of the car, Dr. Sprinkle says, where are you now, Judy? Where are you? And she answered, I'm in two places at once. Mm. I'm standing by the car and I'm looking up at this big light and this beam. I can see a calf going up in the beam. And then I'm, I'm in there. I'm in that craft. And that was the key to unlocking her memory. Hmm. And from that point on, it was one of the most dramatic things in my life that I've ever witnessed because it was as if the cameraman and I and Dr. Sprinkle were suddenly inside of a UFO with mysterious creatures that were, in fact, one that she could see described and sketched and is in my book, An Alien Harvest, my first book. I've done four books. And that creature would be the sort of typical gray, but with very clear reptilian vertical irises as she drew them. And she was watching that being with a utensil. She did not know what it was but that she saw the calf that they saw rising in the beam of light. It was lying on some kind of uh, container, flat container, and the gray being was using an instrument, and she could see was slicing extremely thin slices off the testicles of the calf. And then what followed was telepathic communication between the being and Judy Doherty, and later between either the same being or different being and uh, Cindy Tyndall, who was Judy's daughter. And they both had the impression that whatever was happening, that the beings were trying to communicate that they were monitoring a poison in the environment of Earth that was also in the atmosphere of Earth, and that they were doing the monitoring through these tissue samples. Now, as I talk to you today on June 4th, 2021, I'm not trying in any way to say that is the answer to the animal mutilations. I'm bringing up what they were told and that I am now sophisticated enough over 42 years to know that my bottom line We are dealing with extraterrestrial biological entities in some cases. We are dealing with 100% artificial intelligence in other cases. The mixture of organic intelligence that's very advanced beyond us mixed with artificial intelligence is a key to how the UFO, UAP phenomena has interacted on this planet for at least And I'm going to give a figure that may seem shocking, but it came from a man who uh, worked on UFO ET monitoring and analysis for 23 years for for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he told me that our government of the United States had proof, and he stressed proof, that the gray beings, the tall Nordic beings, reptilian humanoids, a lot of artificial intelligence, a whole huge mixed bag 
had been using Earth as a laboratory for at least 270 million years. And when I said, sir, what is the proof? He said, it is too dangerous for both you and for me if I told you. Now, I'm collapsing 42 years into a few paragraphs, and I'm coming to that last discussion because of everything I know on June 4th of 2021, the animal mutilations, the human abductions, the men in black, the shadows that have come in people's rooms, the little orbs of light that often are in people's uh, rooms as children from age four on, the basketball-sized glowing spheres that people see later, all of it is part of an interaction exactly as the Defense Intelligence Agency analyst told me in December of 1999, that extraterrestrial biological entities three different civilizations of them that compete with each other are in conflict over Earth as a laboratory that each of those civilizations wants for their own experiments is what our government is studying. And that we humans are likely a genetic manipulation 45,000 years ago from a series of genetic manipulations of already evolving hybrids to create the line of various standing up humanoids from Homo erectus to the Denisovans to the Neanderthalensis to Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens sapien, which is the current uh, Earth surface species. And that what the governments of the world, or at least the United States, seem to have been the most concerned about during World War II, as they caught on to the fact that World War II was an extraterrestrial war fought through human bodies, why Hitler was obsessed with populating the Earth with blonde Nordics, uh, what were the real what were the round saucers, what were the Foo Fighters, what were the glowing spheres that could be up in the atmosphere with the jets. And that from that point of World War II, with, with Prime Minister Churchill in England, General Eisenhower on the war front after we joined the war, uh, the... FDR going to Truman and those administrations, all of them, General Twining, all of them, uh, they became aware that they were dealing with bodies that were clones and were identical when they had a crash. They became aware that they were seeing symbols inside of craft at crash sites that they did not recognize. They became aware that they were looking at technologies that not a single one of their advanced scientists from Vannevar Bush to Albert Einstein and on and on, Robert Oppenheimer, who developed the atomic bomb, that they didn't know what they were looking at and that 
the bodies in some cases had to be clones. And one of the questions that would have been dominating that decade of the 1940s for all who knew exactly what was happening in terms of what we were retrieving, even if they didn't understand it, was if you are finding that three bodies or two bodies in a crash in Missouri are clones, the cells are identical body to body, the next logical question that must have been asked by those men in the 1940s uh, trying to figure all this out, it would have been, if these bodies are clones in a spaceship, who made the clones? And that's where we are today. Yeah. Wow. Um so this this phenomenon that you're talking about, I mean, I think, you know, given the fact that we're we're looking at the experiences of the Shermans on Skinwalker Ranch, you think that this phenomenon that you're discussing is the same phenomenon that's manifesting that manifested within their own experiences on the ranch. I did an interview with Terry Sherman uh, back in 1996. In fact, it was on uh, the last day of June of 1996, and I did the interview with him for Dreamland in which I was doing the reporting and uh, Art Bell was doing the hosting on that show that eventually led and split off to doing Coast to Coast AM. And during that period of time, both Art Bell and I had worked with Robert Bigelow, uh, who he was a businessman uh, based in Las Vegas who was becoming very interested in the UFO phenomena. And he was listening to the interview that I did on June 30th, 1996, on Dreamland Radio, when he heard Terry Sherman talking about all of the high strangeness on a ranch that they had purchased just a couple of years before in 1994, when he and his wife Gwen wanted to get what they hoped would be away from cities, out into land that they could live in peace and raise their kids and everything would be pastoral and wonderful. And two years in, their ranch, which was, uh, a lot of people probably have heard of Fort Duchesne, Utah. Uh, this is uh, a little tiny town, uh, which is sort of south of Fort Duchesne. And the uh, some people uh, refer to it as Vernal uh, Ballard is another. They're little tiny towns, and it's mostly ranch country. The night that I was doing the interview with Terry Sherman, I will never forget that he was talking about how they had had mutilations, they had been having disappearing cattle, they had been finding circles and ovals in their pasture grass that was scorched, burned. They had no other way to put it. The normal, think of normal green grass, and then think of inside of that normal green grass, there is maybe an oval that is maybe five, six, seven, eight feet long, maybe five feet wide, and it is so crunchy that it literally could catch on fire, that they had seen an oval go in to the, to the grass fresh. The grass is fresh. And one of these dry, 
burned, crisp ovals is suddenly there, and they had actually seen a one uh, catch fire, so that it went to a, a very abnormal dryness, and then I associate that with animal mutilations all over the world. That is a very common characteristic when people find those kinds of uh, ovals in circles in grass. They also found 14 different triangles that were pressed into the ground, into the pasture. 14 triangles, that is somebody sending a signal of some kind, whether you understand what it is or not. And then out after they had seven animals that disappeared, they had three mutilations, they only had uh, like a hundred and some cattle. Yeah. And one of the ones that shook them to their core happened, it was uh, toward the end of 95, I think it was in December. And they had been having all kinds of phenomena, and this is one case where they went down the road, and they were looking for one specific cow, and they uh, knew that they had gone down to get the cattle, and they were coming back for her. And when they Maybe they had gone only a hundred yards, and uh, one had picked, decided to go back and make sure that they had that one particular cow with them. And they found the cow that they had seen no more than ten minutes earlier, and it is mutilated. Okay, and I have other cases like this. That means that this is something that is happening and can happen so fast. Jump back to Judy and Cindy Doherty. What did they see? A calf plucked by a beam, and then the animals are put back. I've interviewed half a dozen ranchers who have seen this with their own eyes. Animals rise in beams of light or come down in beams of light and be mutilated. So on that one, in the mutilation, it was to them. She's lying there. She has a hole through one of her eyes. I think it was her left eye. Uh, She had about a quarter-inch hole in the eyeball itself, and yet it did not collapse. There was no fluid. There was no blood. It was an eyeball with a quarter-inch hole going through into the eyeball. Um, and this is in the 10 minutes. They had been there and come back, come back. So we're talking again about a surgery technology that can, within uh, a couple of minutes, excise udders, ears, tongue, jaw, genitals, uh, rectal tissue from an animal. Do it quickly, no blood, no fluid, because it is a cauterizing heat. And here then we get to why can this not be some human laser? I did a lot of work for about five years with Dr. John Outschuler, a hematologist and pathologist in Denver, Colorado. And I would go out, I've, I've probably collected tissue from mutilated animals in about 30 pastures. Take formalin solution so you don't harden the tissue, take scissors or a scalpel, you have labels so you can say, here's the sheriff's cut, which was normally scissors, here is the mutilator's cut, here is Linda's cut, uh, scalpel or scissors, and then in the lab, they would prepare the tissue so that you could look at it in, the, in a very 
fine professional microscope. And uh, I remember the first time that Dr. Altshuler called and said, I want you to look at something. And when I got to his lab, he had a stereoscope so you could put one tissue on the right and one tissue on the left for comparison. And he said, tell me what the difference is between these two. And on the right, it was known source gynecological surgery from the University of Colorado that Dr. Altshuler had gotten as a baseline, totally identified, you knew everything about it and what it looked like, and it was laser surgery. I could immediately see what looked like black pepper grains along the excision. In the one on the left, it's sort of resembling the same color, and he tells me that's the tissue from that mutilated cow you went out to last week. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going back and forth, and I realize what is I'm not seeing in the mutilation cut are the black pepper grains. And I said to Dr. Altshuler, I see the black carbon grains on the right, but I don't see any on the left. And he said, it's exactly what bothers me, Linda. The only explanation that I can come up with about what the mutilation technology is, is that it's applying heat in some way. We're looking at cooked hemoglobin. We're looking at cooked collagen. But there's no carbon and we are carbon-based life forms and it is not possible to my medical knowledge that you could ever apply laser heat to any tissue that is an earth life form without having the black carbon pollen grains on the excision so whatever the technology is that is excising the tissues on these mutilated animals linda I don't know what it is. So was it your was it your expertise on the cattle mutilation phenomenon that first got you introduced um, to Terry and Gwen initially? Yes, I think. Oh, I know. I remember uh, when I wrote the Earth Files, uh, and anybody listening can read everything in my uh, September six two thousand and four. Earth Files reports, part one and part two, my interviews with Terry Sherman. And uh, it, it goes back, I did these reports in 2004 because I was not doing any Earth Files in 1996 when I did the original recorded phone interview that was broadcast on Dreamland. But I always had the tapes. So everything is in these reports was transcribed from the tapes. And the um, reason, going all the way back now to June of 1996, when I did the first interview, I had gotten a call uh, from a man who had always been uh, sending uh, letters and uh, saying that 
he was in the uh, Utah area. His name was Ryan Layton, uh, mm. but he was mm-hmm. a UFO researcher. Uh, he had a good friend in Roosevelt, Utah. Uh, they uh, were studying Bigfoot, crop circles, everything. Okay, so Ryan Layton is the one who called and said, you've got to talk to this rancher, Terry Sherman, and his wife, Gwen. And so did you have a chance to talk with them before doing the radio interview? And kind of what was your initial sense from talking to them um, in terms of like what kind of people they were and what their credibility as witnesses were? No, I uh, did the interview was the first uh, and only conversation with them. Hmm. And I did not know them as uh, you would know people I interviewed. And then I knew about the story from uh, all of the various uh, reports and from Ryan Layton. But I'll tell you, Terry Sherman came across to me as a reporter has a sixth sense after you've done a lot of interviews. When you're dealing with somebody who is honest or deceptive or nervous or whatever, you, you within 10, 15 seconds of hearing most people's voices, I can tell sort of a lot about them. And Terry Sherman came across to me as a man who is a straight talker who was frustrated that he and his wife had moved their family into this ranch with the idea of peace, and they got the opposite and that he was angry. That was the underlying emotion talking to Terry Sherman was how upset and angry he was. And I will say that of all of the things that he described for me out of that uh, relatively long interview was I had asked him a question that I often ask people Maybe I'm looking to see what, whether they have any insights into being abducted, uh, missing time. And there's certain questions that you ask that can open up huge balloons in people if they've had the experiences. And I said to him, uh, I wanted to know if he uh, had ever seen something that he thought was like a craft and gotten any telepathic communication. And... What came was his anger, his frustration came bubbling up. And here's exactly, he said that night that his wife was near uh, the end of her rope because these little red lights, tiny red lights, kept coming into the kitchen Um, The kids were sort of scared and sort of angry, and and everybody was emotionally upright this night. And she wanted the red lights to go away. He wanted the red lights to go away. The kids wanted the red lights to go away. And it was almost as if, imagine this scene, that you are standing in your uh, living room or in your dining room, And there are these little red lights about the size of a dime or a nickel, a glowing red, and there's many of them, and they are just moving around your house like they own the place, and that there's nothing you can do, and you don't understand where they're coming from, but you know that you have lost 
uh, seven cattle have disappeared. You've had three bloodless, strange mutilations. You have seen what the uh, native Utes and Navajos would call a skinwalker, which is when something like a big wolf can change into a man or a man can change into a wolf. The skinwalker is the person who can walk into and out of different skins. All of that by this night had been been overwhelming their life. And he said, I looked out a window with my wife and those kids so wanting those red lights to disappear. And I just was enraged. And then I could see more orange lights down in the pasture uh, about a quarter, half a mile away. And he said, I just grabbed my rifle with the hunting scope and I raised up that, I think it was a 50 power or something scope. And he said, and I'm looking through and I can see these multiple orange windows and I know it is a craft. And he said, I just started running. I, I took off. I don't care. I want to confront the, this. And he ran. He got down below what he thought was huge. He wasn't sure how big it was because basically he was seeing these orange oval uh, lights. And when I asked him, when you get down there, what are you seeing and are you feeling, are you experiencing any telepathy? And he said, yeah, I got down there. I got right under this thing. And he said, and then I couldn't believe it. I'm looking up through this window or something on the bottom, and there are two men there, and they are arguing. And he said, well, arguing, what do you mean? He said, well, there's a man, he's huge. He looks very human, but he's much bigger than we are. And he said he had a full beard, and he was dressed in what I, and this is a quote, I would say it was military-type dress, kind of charcoal to dark gray. And I asked, did it have any symbols? And he said, yeah, it had a red square on the collar that was outlined in gold. And he said, I could see something inside of it, but I couldn't tell what it was. And then he goes on saying that this this man, six to eight feet tall, the large man, is arguing with a smaller man with very fine features, narrow nose, very high, high cheekbones. He uh, stressed that the ear tips were back more than a human's, uh, that it had a cap on. Now, this was very interesting to me. I remember talking to him on the phone. World War II, where the Germans wore the wool caps, he said. Well, guess what? Betty Hill, back in 1961, when she and her husband were taken from the White Mountains in New Hampshire, what she did, a very fine illustration with an illustrator. And what is that? Uh, a kind of gray-skinned being. It has one of those wool caps like the Germans were depicted in World War II. And he said, let me read this to you. 
at one point, Mr. Sherman said it appeared as if the two men were arguing. Suddenly, he thought he could hear their voices and had the impression that some part of himself was suddenly inside the craft briefly where the two men were arguing. He felt like he was in two places at once, exactly as Judy Doherty had said back in March of uh, 1980 when Leo Sprinkle and I were doing the hypnosis. Okay, so this is now Terry Sherman saying he it feels like he's in two places at once. He's inside the craft where the two men are arguing, and then he is on the ground below the craft uh, as if he were in two places at once, and then... As he is back on the ground, looking up through the lighted orange hole where the two men were, he could hear one of them say, quote, It wouldn't do him any good if we tried to explain to him, because he would never understand what we are doing here. Close quote. There's just something so... The, the thing that's grabbed my attention so much about this story is it's such a blend of something that seems present, physically present, like a tech, something that's technologically based. But then we also have these elements of what I would almost call like poltergeist elements, but also psychic phenomenon that seems to span the whole breadth of unexplained phenomenon. I guess in your opinion, and maybe from what you gathered from Terry himself, did he think that this was, there was a physical, you know, this is, these are creatures from outer space, or did he think that there was something Maybe even more, um, uh, maybe, I don't know what the word is, more ethereal, spiritual in nature to this experience that he was having. I think without question, he and his wife associated everything with the UFOs that they had been seeing since they moved in there. Uh, and 94, 95, 96, uh, before he finally sold the ranch to Robert Bigelow, and that was because Robert Bigelow was listening to my interview on June 30th in 1994, and uh, it was then around that time that Bob Bigelow then sought out Terry Sherman, uh, very interested knowing that the family was beside themselves and they wanted to move. And so he made them an offer, and they accepted, and then what Bob Bigelow then tried to do was to work with government agencies and independent investigators and so forth um, to study the Sherman Ranch, as it's come to be called, or the Skinwalker Ranch, um, like you would take on a scientific project and you apply scientific method and you document uh, trying to get down to understanding the source. And after the, as I understand, I've heard some of the firsthand accounts of some of the amazing things that happened, and a lot of it is in the book that Colm Kelleher, mm -hmm. uh, who was a biologist, did with uh, George Knapp, who is a longtime reporter at Channel 8 in Las Vegas, Hunt for the Skinwalker, Science confronts the unexplained at a remote ranch in Utah. Well, they confronted all right, but did they really understand what they were dealing with? I'm not so sure, except that I myself have had a hypothesis for some time. Um, it ties into people I have talked to who either uh, work at the molybdenum mine on the Rocky Mountain crest, uh, sort of southwest uh, of Denver, 
during World War II, it was a big operation for molybdenum. And uh, I have talked per- uh, personally with, he's an engineer who worked at Martin Marietta. And this would have been back around the year 1982 to 83, a couple of years after my A Strange Harvest had broadcast. And this man sought me out while he was actively working as an engineer at Martin Marietta. He had seen my broadcast um, and he had waited, it was a year or so, and decided that he would finally seek me out. I was a complete stranger to him. But over the last 43 years, I have had some of the most invaluable material come to me from scientists and engineers who have heard me on radio, television, or books, and they seek me out because they know I am one uh, uh, one of the people who is trying to the best of my ability to report with scientific method, with facts, uh, working with people who are professionals. And these are men and women in various corporations and military and aerospace operations who are so frustrated because they know there is this entire other layer of another intelligence or intelligences Some of them know firsthand about which type their particular organization might be doing something with, and that the disconnect between, we'll call it the global ignorant population, deliberately kept dumb and blind for decades, for centuries, about the fact that we're not alone in this universe, we never have been, and that our own government That DIA analyst in that meeting in December of 1999, who sought me out because of material in my books that he knew was absolutely what he studied and they didn't think another human being in anywhere knew what they knew. And then I did these books and he was astounded and he wanted to meet me. And I said, well, you guys don't have control on what the extraterrestrial biological entities and their AI are doing to humans, right? I am interviewing fellow human beings who are drawing for me, who are bringing me samples, and this is their lives independent of the government of the United States or any other political organization. You guys, how could you possibly think that you had a 100% monopoly on what some advanced intelligence is doing on this planet. And he's, I remember this man was uh, a little rattled by what he had seen in 106 pages in my uh, newly released book, Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 2, High Strangeness. And it is a big chapter, it's 106 pages. And he said, I got a phone call from somebody who said, you have to get Linda Moulton Howe's new book. And he said, when they said it was X subject, I couldn't believe it because he said, I have worked for the DIA for 23 years, and I was working on monitoring the competition and conflict between three extraterrestrial civilizations using this planet in different ways, but in all three as a laboratory and that one of the subjects that I and everybody working in this DIA unit thought that we had buttoned down and no one would ever know anything about it. 
and I get your book after the phone call, and I open up to your 106-page chapter, and you have illustrations, you have photographs, you have maps, you have uh, interviews, you have all of these materials in the very subject that we thought no one would ever know. And what is it? It's the uh, what the abductees call the uh, resurrection technology, that um, people have been exposed to seeing their bodies and other bodies, both human and extraterrestrial, inside of glass tubes uh, big enough for human bodies or even bigger bodies, and with light that is at the top and the bottom of the tubes with a purplish gas inside, and that in these uh, half a dozen cases in Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 2, High Strangeness, the non-humans communicate telepathically to the human abductees. This is the haunting quote. It is vital that your entity... And every human abductee always understands that when they hear that word entity, it means their soul, the human soul. It is vital that your entity, the human soul, continue to be inside your particular uh, body container for X amount more time. We must organize so that that can happen. And that is why we are allowing you to die here in this form, but you are coming back alive instantly in this body. And there's not anyone that I know who understands exactly what that means, but I'm telling you that's what this huge chapter is about with all of these really excellent illustrations, and it gets back to... Is there a parallel between the harvest of fluid and tissue in the bloodless, trackless animal mutilations and the harvest of sperm and eggs, tissues, and putting implants in homo sapien sapien bodies? I know that you've actually visited the ranch, uh, Skinwalker Ranch. Maybe kind of talk me talk me through that experience and, and what it was like when you visited. I have been to Skinwalker Ranch only once in my life. And that was at the request of Kevin Burns, who was uh, the founder, uh, creator of Ancient Aliens and uh, the owner of Prometheus Productions in L.A. I'm in my 14th season of working on Ancient Aliens. And Kevin Burns uh, called and said, I really want you to go in this first season of uh, the Skinwalker Ranch and it was not very long. He called, and they arranged, and I was flying there without any specific role. Uh, he wanted me to be there, and uh, unbeknownst to all of us, that on the afternoon that I got into uh, the town near the, nearest the Skinner, Skinwalker Ranch, they had a report of the death of a cow. Well, uh, as it turned out, it was definitely not a mutilation. Uh, When I got to see it, it was not a mutilation at all. But it was a very strange and eerie way to go 
so that one of the first events at the Skinwalker Ranch was the death of a cow. And here's what I can say. The, the ranch went from the Shermans to Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow hired various people, and they had military and intel trying to study the phenomena, and they all became extremely uh, spooked by what was happening on the ranch. It was during that period of time that it went from being called the Sherman Ranch to the Skinwalker Ranch uh, because of all of the spooky phenomena and the association of the Utes and the Navajos that are in the Uinta Basin of Utah that for centuries, you go back 300 years, and the Uinta Basin has the same reputation now as it had with the Utes and the Navajo. And that had to do with seeing beings change from wolves to humans. And always the skinwalker was associated with things dark, evil. And so in this transition, uh, finally, I guess Bob Bigelow got to a point where he didn't want to be dealing with the spooky place. And Robert Bigelow uh, ended up selling the ranch to Brandon Fugel and with the idea maybe that scientific research of some sort would continue in this very odd Uinta Basin that is literally centuries of Native American stories about things that go bump in the night that can appear as a wolf, a human, anything and is dark and has darkness on its mind. And that's how it came to go from the Sherman Ranch to the Skinwalker Ranch. And today, as we are in 2021, I think it is one of those places that unless we went deep and dug down, if we had the ability through ground-penetrating radar to get down deep enough, this might be one of those places that we would finally firm what I have been told for at least two decades, that the non-human intelligences that use this planet, genetically manipulate this planet, are on our moon, are based in uh, Mars, have a base inside of uh, other parts of the solar system and on out to the Milky Way galaxy, that what they do is inhabit planets and moons very often extremely deeply and that they know how to do it because they have the ability to do instant advanced computer spherical geometry analysis of where there are basins, maybe uh, 50 miles below the surface of something, and that it's not going to be swamped by a melted core or something. And that when you start thinking about it, that if you are an advanced intelligence that can roam through the entire Milky Way galaxy and beyond, the surface of so many bodies, planets, moons, asteroids, they must be unstable. There must be much that is unstable. We, the suns, like recently, uh, Alpha Proxima or Proxima Centauri, 
there was this huge burst of UV light from that sun that is 4.2 light years from Earth. And the announcement from scientists was if there had been any light or if there had been any life on that planet when that sun burst, that everything would have died. And I think we, Homo sapiens sapien now in the 21st century, we really truly are like babies going into first grade and in elementary school for the world while our intel and our military have been coping with the unidentified flying object, unidentified aerial phenomena since World War II, they know a lot. They know so much more than they are saying now. And it leaves me always with this final question on everything I do. Why shouldn't the entire Homo sapiens sapien population be told the whole truth and nothing but the truth that every government and political organization has learned since World War II. Because if we knew all the facts, if we knew everything that they knew, then we would be less broadsided if something does show up, that we would have some understanding about what the governments and the military operations maybe have confronted. And that as the remote viewers have told me more than once and more than Two of them have said this. When they have done remote viewing of other consciousness in this universe, that they always get the impression of other consciousness and that it ranges from friendly to neutral to hostile. The smallest number in those three groups, from the point of view of the control remote viewers, is the hostile. Smallest. If the friendlies and the neutrals are much bigger, then why can we not move in this decade into that knowledge, into understanding that we're going to be introduced to other life forms? Some may look just like us, and some may look like standing up reptiles, and some may be the strange grays that are largely artificial intelligence. But if we would start being educated about the truth and the facts, we might actually get stronger and take comfort that even when we did not know that we were not alone in this universe, that there were friendlies and neutrals that were protecting us from hostiles. Do you expect anything to come from this UIP report to Congress this month? I had so hoped that the government of the United States, the SecDef, and the DNI would use this 180-day countdown legitimately to tell everybody wants to know the truth. And if they announce it and said, we are not alone, yes, we have been dealing with these different civilizations, yes, they are the explanation for the Anunnaki and the Sumerians and going back and back, everybody would have handled it. And now if they lie again and they push it all back or they give us uh, something that is not true, then to me, the risk of the entire American public, for one, no longer believing anything that the United States government says is becoming a danger. Well, Linda, I I know we are at time, so I have a hundred other questions I could ask you, but we'll cut it here just because I know you're very busy. Um, 
Before we leave, though, is there any is if other if people are interested in learning more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to to learn more? Uh, I have been producing EarthFiles.com. Think of a reporter who files news about the Earth. E a r t h f i l e s dot com. And that is a huge news website at www.earthfiles.com. I have about 3,000 in-depth reports there now in science, environment, and real X-Files. And those real X-Files, I have been told by a number of people in the military and in Intel who have talked to me off the record, that I have some of what they consider to be some of the most important information that if everybody just read my real X-Files, they would be getting a lot of truth, and that means a lot to me that I've been told that. And then um, for the last three and a half years, I have been doing a weekly Wednesday night broadcast. The Earth Files YouTube channel broadcast, it is live 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain and in all other time zones around the world. And we are getting up to 60 to 70 countries being represented in the audience now in Wednesday nights. Uh, we have uh, broken through. We're getting close to 177,000 subscribers. And it is the best feeling that at a time that is this uncertain that I'm on Wednesday nights, more and more people are coming from the United States and around the world with their own incredible stories, with their own perceptive questions, and we are having real dialogues, and I am trying to provide mini-docs with each Wednesday night broadcast about a subject or a person that I think is important. And what I'm seeing is if the government of the United States and other governments would be just as honest as we're trying to be on the Earth Files YouTube channel on Wednesday nights. People are not afraid. They want more and more honest information. What they want is the truth. And I am a longtime journalist, science, medicine, and the environment. Facts mean everything to me, and that's what I have been trying to report since the fall of 1979 when I went into the first pasture and got to see with my own eyes the first bloodless, trackless cattle mutilation. And that I have seen dozens and dozens and dozens more of these animals. And I don't feel fear as I talk to you. I try to let people know we are dealing with other intelligences who if they wanted to, could have harmed us a long time ago. And that we need to keep going, asking as many questions, asking our governments and military to tell us the truth, not because there's something to be afraid of, but because there is other intelligence for us as humans to join with in understanding the universe that we live in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook 
at Strange Phenomenon, all one word. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergei Cheramizanov.